Just because I fail at something or just because I'm struggling with this aspect of my, my work, that doesn't reflect on me as a person. And I think that's the most important thing for grad students to kind of understand. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we talk to a current graduate student about how to be unhappy in grad school. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 58. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Daniel. Joshua, what's happening? Not much. Another week, another guest. This is kind of a record for us, I think. Two weeks in a row. Okay, that's a small record, <laughs> but it's a record. It counts. We have with us this week, Deirdre Sackett. Hi, Deirdre. Hi. How's it going? Good. Excellent, excellent. Josh picked up a special beer in your honor today. Ooh. So, Deirdre, I have to tell you, this is, I think, the first time ever we've had a guest on the show when I asked for a beer recommendation and they actually gave me one. Yeah, usually it's, I don't really like beer, I'm not a big beer fan. Like, oh, where do we get these people? (laughs) See, I felt kind of awkward. I was like, oh, well, I'll I'll drink most beers, but I like this particular beer if you'll get it to me. (laughs) No, it's it's good because we never get this style beer. So tell us what we have, Josh. (laughs) Yeah, so so Deirdre told me she especially likes a Hefeweizen. Yeah, all the listeners who also like Hefeweizens are like, they never talk about that. 58 episodes in. It's all, have, all IPAs. First half of Eisen. Can you believe it? All right. So what we have, although Dan, you know my penchant for fruity beers. Fruit flavors. So what we have this week is the Smutty Nose Brewing Company from Hampton, New Hampshire. This is the Peach Shortweiss. And I, I have to look up Smutty Nose because I don't understand what that means. It sounds kind of dirty. Yeah, it sounds like there's like dirt on somebody's nose and that I'm eating a beer. Well, there's, there's a picture of like a seal on the... That's informative. Maybe there's a smutty nose seal. I'm looking it up now. Talk amongst yourselves. Uh, one thing that I found interesting about smutty nose is they actually have a division of their company that's called Smut Labs. Guess that sounds even... I, that I sounds think. even worse. <laughs> not a good I don't know what they doing? were thinking. Uh, so what Smut Labs does is... They, that's their experimental section where they try out really random types of beer. And apparently the peach short vice, the short means a short run batch. So they make all their experimental beers in very short batches. And that's where this one came from. So, and are you getting a lot of peach out of it? It's, it's almost, it is on the spectrum of a sour beer. I don't know if you've had sour beers before, but. Yeah, it Deirdre, you're the Hefeweizen fan. What do you think? Yeah, well, so for anyone who thinks that Hefeweizens taste like bananas, which they do not, by the way. This does not. This d- definitely does not taste like bananas. Definitely it's very no. sour and very fresh and very tart, and I like it. Yeah, I'm not a typical sour beer fan at all, but this is okay. I don't mind this. Good choice. All right, science in the news. Are you ready? I am ready for science in the news. Do you like my jingle? I love the sound effect, yes. All right, Deirdre, Dan, do either of you wear a fitness tracker, like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or a Jawbone? I do not. Neither do I. But you know of these things, right? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we actually talked a few... I have a Jawbone, but it's like in my jaw. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I have a Fitbit, but it's in my 
<laughs> I don't have one. Uh, I think we talked about this a, a while back. I think it was in our fitness in grad school episode. Oh, yeah, how, around New Year's, I recall this. Yeah, how it would be interesting to note how far you walk in a typical day in the lab. How one thing we miss being out of the lab is the amount of activity that we had when going to a desk I st- job. I still have a treadmill desk. I still have it. I just don't have a Fitbit to track my movements. Well, so there was a recent study in JAMA, Mama JAMA. Yep. The journal, the journal, journal, <laughs> journal of the American Medical Association that came out uh, last week. And they were looking at the effect of wearable technology combined with lifestyle intervention on long-term weight loss. Okay. Can we make some predictions? Go for it. Okay. The technology does nothing. Hmm. That would be my guess. Okay. I may be cheating because I may have read this story like yesterday, but I'm also going to guess that the technology does not do anything. And and let me, I didn't, I didn't look ahead because you told me not to look in the, in the show notes to see what we were going to talk about. I'm guessing it doesn't make a difference because it feels like a, a vanity metric that really you're going to get tired of after a little bit and you'll stop wearing it and no difference. But tell me the opposite. Tell me that Fitbit, I should invest in their stock. Well, so what the researchers wanted to know was to address the growing obesity, <laughs> the growing obesity epidemic. Waka waka. Uh, wow. Good phrasing. So <laughs> how much is that peach beer have you had? <laughs> so clearly these wearable technologies are, are growing in popularity quite a bit. I mean, how many people do you see walking around with their and activity Apple tracker? Apple Watch now. We should mention Apple Watch. The new, has their the own, new Apple yeah. Watch. That's yeah, and right. all the knockoffs too yep. for yes. us grad student budgets. That's true. I don't see a lot of grad students with Apple Watches. You got the pedometer with the L- L- LCD <laughs> screen. What is it? Not an LED screen. Yeah. And you know, I've actually, Dan, I have some friends who work for companies where they actually give out these Fitbits and you can get um, incentives for wearing your Fitbit and reporting your um, number of steps and your activity. Yeah, they wanted to do that on my company health plan. And I, and I walk on a tread desk. Like I actually, I do think it's important to stay moving. And the person came up, the healthcare, health insurance provider, and she said, oh, you know, you can report on your steps and get a discount. I was like, go away right now. But that's fascinating, right? Because here we have health insurance providers who usually do a great job of knowing um, what is going to impact their bottom line as far as healthcare costs, who are buying in and saying, we believe wearing these monitors, you know, are actually going to improve health in some way. Now to the science. Now to the science. So, So basically what they did was... They enrolled 471 adults around October, between October 2010 and 2012, and they monitored them for two years, all right? So during the first six months, what they did was they basically helped people get on a lower-calorie diet, helped them institute some some physical activity habits, um, and then they also they set them up with this website to log, log their activity and, the, and their diet. All right, so after the six months... All of the participants who were still in the study reported losing weight. Okay. Okay. So now at this point, though, they randomly assigned half the participants to a self-monitoring group, right? So this group continued to stay on the diet, stay with the exercise, but self-monitoring. No peer pressure. Okay. The other half was randomly assigned to the activity monitor group, right? So they were all given some wrist some, they didn't name the official brand, but some... Probably a Fitbit, yeah. Probably, uh, which would monitor their activity and report it for them. So, the results, after two years, so for a year and a half more, they monitored activity and other uh, metrics. So, going into this this extra time, everybody had lost weight. 
That's right. And then they just divided them up to yep. who is going to self-report and who's going to use a Fitbit. Well, so I'm happy to report at the end of the two years, on average, the group who did not wear the Fitbits, who self-monitored themselves, lost an average of 13 pounds than they were at the beginning. Good. That's pretty good. All right. The group who wore the activity monitors weighed only about eight pounds less. Ooh, mm. wow. Yeah. They didn't gain weight because they were like, look how many steps I took today. <laughs> I'm going to eat a donut. That's not what they saw. Everybody lost weight. Okay. But apparently, um, there was a significant, significantly increased weight loss in the group that did not have the activity monitor, which was surprising to the researchers. Am I wrong about this notion that, like, if you go for a workout, you feel like you sh- you've earned the chance to eat 3,000 more calories? You're like, oh, but I can have this because... I, I went just, on a walk, so yeah. I'm going to eat this whole gallon of ice cream. I, well, I do that. I don't know if anybody else... Well, it's interesting. That's what, what you guys thought of because that was initially what the researchers thought was that theater- theoretically using the monitor and getting that instant feedback yeah, on their activity might have led them to to eat more. But that's actually not what they saw at all. And one of the things that was really interesting was they noticed individuals wearing the technology generally exercise less than people who were in the group that was self-monitoring. I wonder why that is, just because you think you've done enough by seeing the number go up? Well, they didn't know exactly. They one tied of the, the Fitbit to the dog, and it looked like it went up a lot. So, Well, one of the things that they speculated was that perhaps if individuals had physical activity targets, they were more aware of how far they were from their target if they were monitoring it. So maybe they said, meh. Not going to make no. it today, so I might as well uh, might as well not try. Well, I've taken 30 steps today. I'll call, call it quits. But- so, so I actually um, read this article online um, yesterday. Yeah, the article um, that kind of summed up the um, scientific article basically was saying it depended on the people's personalities. Like if they saw their fitness goal wasn't being reached, they just kind of gave up. They're mm-hmm. like, well, it's not worth it for me. I don't really want to... You know, I can't get there, so I may as well not try. Exactly. Yeah. So it was just it was an interesting kind of people study in the end. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And and so in an interview with one of the one of the researchers, um, and I should mention too, this was a study from researchers at the University of Pittsburgh. But they said the people using the monitors may also have assumed that in a roundabout way, the technology removed responsibility from them for monitoring their energy intake. Mm. Doctor Jackasik from uh, University of Pittsburgh said people may have focused on the technology and forgotten to focus on their behaviors. So interesting technology. I've never liked it. Can't do everything for no, us. No, it can't. It's the robot uprising controlling our exercise. There now, you go. In honor of segways, we'll see how this one flies. You got me a scooter? No, I didn't. Oh. No, that'd be great. Deidre does behavioral neuroscience. This must have been required reading in your program this week. <laughs> It was. <laughs> it's, all about, it's all about behavior, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So so we have Deirdre Sackett here. And the reason we have Deirdre, besides being a very pleasant human being. Oh, thanks. She penned an article that showed up in the science blog Sizzle. That's Sizzle like science plus Izzle. Izzle. Like, or more like, <laughs> you know, like. Izzle. Like, yeah. Sizzle. Yeah. <laughs> sizzle. We'll call it Sizzle. 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 And this article was called How to Be Unhappy in Grad School. Sounds I, sad. No, I've got that one figured out. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you like to buy my book? Deirdre, why do you want us all to be unhappy in grad school? Are you unhappy? You don't seem unhappy. I'm not unhappy, and I'm going to tell you why. Well, before you do, why don't you first just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So um, I'm Deirdre Sackett. I'm a fourth-year grad student in the Behavioral Neuroscience Department at UNC, 
Um, I'm in Dr. Regina Corelli's lab, and I study the neurobiology of decision-making. Um, and specifically, I'm looking at impulsive choice behaviors, uh, which I think is really cool because a lot of us are impulsive. We don't know anything about that, do we, Josh? <laughs> no impulsive decisions here. That's <laughs> why we drink beer every week. Nope. <laughs> yeah, so I'm all about, you know, figuring out why we make the decisions that we do, you know, well, first of all, why did we decide to go to grad school or why did we decide to do this research? Why did we decide to spend five years of our life or six years or seven years going, you know, and studying these topics that mean a lot to us? Yeah, and that's this, interesting. And, and it wasn't for happiness. And I think this was the take home um, from your article. But, but walk us through. The title was very provocative, How to Be Unhappy. So so tell us what how you got started. What does that mean? So... Um, effective communication begins with a good lead, which means you need to hook your audience, right? And so um, that was kind of where I was going with that. But um, I actually got inspiration for that article from a oatmeal comic. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with oatmeal, um, the oatmeal, I, correct. <laughs> I've, I've read the comics for a long time, as many bodily function jokes as he can possibly fit in, but he's really funny. So. Yes, many, many poop jokes. Yep. Um, so I was a little hesitant to admit that I got the idea from that comic, but um, it was, I believe, a couple weeks ago that I read his newest comic, and it was called How to Be Perfectly Unhappy. And I was like, ooh, I want to read this because it's a catchy title. And uh, I read through it, and he got the idea from a essay um, in the Wall Street Journal, again, kind of on the similar topic of being unhappy and being okay with it. And in the end, Matt Inman, the creator of The Oatmeal, kind of uh, his bottom line is, you know, you don't have to be happy or unhappy with what you do in life. Just have meaning in it. Find it meaningful. And that's what you need to aim for, not happiness. Um, and so kind of clicked in my mind. I was like, oh, that sounds like grad school. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of sat down on the couch uh, and wrote from there. Yeah, so it's it's so... It's, I don't know. It feels like every time you come home from graduate school and you see your family or you call your mom on the phone or whatever, and they say, oh, are you having a great time? And you're like, well, I can't say it's a great time. Is that what you experienced? Yeah, you don't really know what to say to people who ask you, you know, oh, are you happy with your Do grad you love school grad experience? School? Like, oh, I love it. I yeah, so I kind of, you know, wax poetic in my article about, you know, when someone asks you a question, are you happy? You know, that kind of limits your response to, yeah, or no, I'm miserable. So um, that's kind of what I wanted to challenge in my article. And Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like as a culture, we're obsessed with happiness, right? That that's no matter what you're doing, you know, that's really the extent of the questioning that we have for people. I know I'm guilty that too. When my kids go to school, I'm like, oh, did you have a good day? Yep. Well, most right. days are very nuanced, right? Yes, there were good parts and there were bad parts, but forcing someone to make a snap decision that encompasses in one word the entirety of experiences I had in this day, and especially when you apply that to something like graduate school. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not just in graduate school, it's in the culture we have rights, inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like this is the ultimate, to be alive, to not be chained up somewhere, and then to try to be as happy as we can. That's our, that's our destiny. It's right? a lot of pressure, right? It is. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what was cool about the oatmeal article, that happiness isn't always the goal and shouldn't always be the goal. And just because you're not happy with something in the moment doesn't mean that it's not a fulfilling 
experience in your life. So I have a couple specific questions about some of the things you're writing. So one thing you mentioned in the article is you bring up this really common image of a graduate student as being overworked and strung out and overcaffeinated, underpaid perhaps. Do you think that's an accurate assessment of real grad students in real life? So that's a great question. And I must admit, I kind of, you know, stuck to hyperbole there just for the sake of the, you know, the image that it portrays. But um, I would say on a day-to-day basis, probably not. Um, But there have definitely been times where either me or my friends or, you know, people who I know who are in grad school have gone through, you know, a week or two stretch of, you know, oh, God, I need to work, you know, (laughs) these long weeks, long hours. Grand deadline, poster presentation, and you've got, yeah, you're doing qualifiers. I don't know, you're doing lab meeting that week. And it all stacks up. It always is the same week for some reason. Oh, yeah. No, it all just kind of happens like at once, you know, and then you have a lull for a couple weeks, and then it all kind of ramps back up. So I wouldn't say that it's an accurate portrayal of a grad student, but it's definitely... Um, a common image, I would say, if that helps differentiate. And it does feel seasonal to me. There are the the graduate student in first year or second year where you're taking classes and you kind of show up to lab sometimes is different from the grad student who is trying to write a dissertation or who is in their third year trying to figure out why did my project fail and can I put another one back together in time to graduate? Mm, exactly. Yeah, you know, a thing that came to mind for me was if you asked, if you surveyed a group of people and, and you did one of these experiments where you said, all right, I'm going to say something and you say the first word that pops into your mind. And if I was to say graduate student, I wonder how many people would immediately say a negative word and not a positive word. And if that's true, well, then why do so many people go to graduate school if there's this common thought that it's just this miserable, miserable time? And, and it made me wonder if those stereotypes are truly based on some reality of how maybe being a graduate student is a totally miserable pursuit. Or if knowing that those stereotypes exist, if sometimes we in the lab and science community almost feel the need to gravitate towards living into those stereotypes, maybe we think, oh, I should be burned out. I should be complaining or I should be disgruntled. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I definitely have some strong thoughts on that for sure, because to go to grad school, you have to be a certain type of personality. You kind of have to be, uh, I don't want to say type A, but really, you know, driven, really organized, really, you know, X, Y, Z. And then when you get to grad school, you know, you see all your peers, you know, working really, really hard and you say, oh man, I have to work as hard as them to, because they're being successful and that's what I have to do. And so I think it just kind of snowballs. And of course, there's always, as you said, the stereotype that we keep in mind. And so I don't think that really helps calm us down. (laughs) Yeah, this is like the Facebook effect where everybody else other than you is on vacation just because that's when they're posting their status. But like the person two labs down just got a cell paper and I haven't gotten any papers. And and you're you're seeing all the successes, but you're not seeing everybody in the the kind of drudgery and failure that is extremely common. I would say it's also a form of um, competitiveness in a way, not, not malicious in any way, but you know, it's, it's being competitive to benefit yourself. You're saying, Oh wow, these people are doing this, this, and this, I got to do this, this, and this to compete in a way. Maybe I need to stay later. Maybe I need to work a little harder. Yeah. So I was thinking about, this TED talk that I saw just a few weeks ago, actually, my, my team watched this. 
And it was by this guy, Sean Aker, who is, I mean, he's a researcher and he spent some time at Harvard. I don't know if it was his grad work or something, but he talked about how he was from Texas and then he ended up as this student at Harvard and how on the first day he just felt super excited and super fortunate to be, wow, I'm here at Harvard. This is so cool. Um, but he realized how quickly no one then seemed happy to be there and how as human beings, especially in our culture, we have this tendency to never be satisfied with accomplishments, right? So maybe we were successful in high school and we go to college and, you know, we immediately focus on, oh, I've got to do well in college, I've got to compete. And then we do well in college, we graduate, we get into grad school. And rather than stop and be excited, like, wow, I get this opportunity to work with these really smart people and, and try to understand how the world works, instantly we move the goalposts to what success actually is defined as in our minds. So success is always over the horizon. We never allow ourselves to actually bask in the, <laughs> the joy of our own accomplishments. It's always something off in the future. Yeah, you're not you're not currently excited about getting that National Honor Society award in high school, Josh. <laughs> Still, every day because <laughs> you worked at, for it, I'm I, sure. I yeah. polish that yeah. bad boy uh, in my office every day. <laughs> no, but you're right. We we don't pause, and and usually we'll be excited for a little while, and then that that next goal shows up on the horizon, and then we run for that. You're right. So I guess along those lines, you know, I really want to get at what I thought was really fascinating. That is the crux of of what your article got at, and it seems like. You know, you mentioned that whole notion of asking graduate students or anybody if they're happy is way overly reductionist. And you talk a little bit about how grad school is a lot of work and there are a lot of complicated <laughs> things that happen there. I guess talk a little bit about how you think grad students can best focus on the positive in the midst of maybe a lot of inevitable setbacks. Yeah, if we're not supposed to be happy, what are we supposed to be? Why are we going to graduate school? Sure, yeah, I mean, that's that's a fantastic question, and a lot of people really struggle with that because, you know, they, they get kind of stuck in the mire of, oh, I have these deadlines, I have all this, I have that, I have, you know, all this other things going on in my life beside my grad work that need to be dealt with. So it's a lot of things coming I'd at I'd like to person. go to the gym or see my mom. I'd like get to get pet, groceries. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've right. definitely had to put off a couple of shopping trips because of um, my my work. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess. I mean, how do you, you know, I imagine you sometimes have experiments that don't work. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And to, to, uh, yeah, to kind of deal with that, you kind of take, take a step back and say, you know, you know, just because I fail at something or just because I'm struggling with this aspect of my, my work, um, that doesn't reflect on me as a person. And I think that's the most important thing for grad students to kind of understand is you're going to fail in grad school at something, you know, nothing goes a hundred percent perfectly. Um, but that doesn't mean you're a bad person. That doesn't mean you're a bad scientist. It means you're a human and humans make mistakes and you just got to pick yourself up and kind of move right along because if what you're doing is in the end meaningful to you, then you can fail a million times and still find meaning in that. Yeah. And I thought that was really the fascinating and really inspiring part of the, of the oatmeal comic was I may not be or appear happy in this moment, right? I may I'm not be, giggling while I run my gel. Yeah. But you know what? That doesn't mean that what I'm doing doesn't provide, it's not meaningful work for me. And that's really what keeps me going and what is important to me, not this sort of transient happiness feeling. 
but that, you know, I really believe in and I'm passionate about the work. And the two don't always go hand in hand. You can be unhappy, but still find meaning in your work. Absolutely. For instance, I was working on an experiment that had a pretty high rate of failure. Um, And as I was learning the experiment too, you know, I was failing time after time after time. And I was getting really down on myself. I was, you know, really sad. I was like, oh man, is grad school right for me? You know, I had all these, you know, really not so great thoughts. And then I got my first successful data point and that feeling of joy was just like, like through the roof, like, oh my gosh, I did it. I can do anything. I can do it. Yay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as, as the year or two progressed, um, and I, I collected my data and, you know, prepared the paper and everything, you know, it was, it was ups and downs for sure. But, um, in the end it was meaningful to me because I saw the data that I was producing through the failures and the successes and kind of that net sum of all of that was really special. Yeah, and that's a great example of what you said before, which is when we fail, we wrap it up into our identity. And I, I totally ate that in grad school. I ate it and, and embodied it. When I failed repeatedly, it was because I was bad at science and I wasn't working as hard as these people. And it was and and looking back now with the with the perspective, I'm like, why did I keep trying this experiment that they gave me to do and and I recognize it was never gonna work? Why didn't I find some other path that I knew could be creative and, and work? But at the time, I was like, well, everybody else got this to work. Why can't I do it? I'm just terrible at this. Right. And that taps into the imposter syndrome, you know, scourge that we all struggle with. I mean, even beyond grad school, you know, a lot of people struggle with it. You know, I think, pardon me if this goes into a soapbox moment, but I think in a lot of ways where some people struggle with graduate schools, as you said, I mean, failure is inevitable as a graduate student. But the way, you know, really the way our educational system is set up, at least in the United States, we don't really teach or encourage people and students to fail. Failure is not seen as a positive at all. The way you're um, graded or the way you're assessed is, you know, you take tests and you get grades and you need the good grades to move on to the next level. And, you know, we know, maybe we experience this too, students have a lot of anxiety surrounding doing well, failure is not really an option. So a lot of times I would say, because as you mentioned, Deirdre, a lot of us were really high-performing students when we got into graduate school. Many of many graduate students probably haven't experienced real failure or really a situation where they didn't know the answer. And so it's kind of a weird situation where it's okay and expected to not know the answer. But I imagine it can be traumatic if you've never been encouraged um, or put in a situation where that's the norm. Yeah, if your entire academic career is success after success, I got straight A's and I was a valedictorian and then you get to graduate school and you're like, I can't get anything to work. And then you get, you know, desk rejected and your experiments don't work and yada yada. Yeah, we've been there. (laughs) Yeah, because usually that means you did something wrong, right? You could have studied more or you could have, it's something indictment on you, but in graduate school, you have nothing to do with, I mean, how many grants get, get not funded, get bad school has nothing to do with the quality sometimes it's just it's just the system sometimes like there's so so many inputs and not enough outputs Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't reflect on you as the scientist it's you know kind of the whole picture it's the system man it's the system the oatmeal cartoon references mihai chiksentmihai who wrote the who did a lot of the research about um flow like entering a flow state where you are so immersed in the task that you're in you're not happy you're not sad you're not anything but you are so immersed and involved that time passes quickly and you i think you get a deep sense of meaning from that and i think if you can get that in your research 
awesome. And and it's not like you you're giggling and having a great time, but um, that is the the state you want to be in. If you can find work that satisfies that, that's how I feel every time I'm recording this podcast with you, Dan. Great, Josh. Thank you. <laughs> Me too. That could be the peach hefeweizen, but who knows? I'm sure it is. So, Deirdre, I guess to to wrap it up, if there's anything you want graduate students or really anyone to take away from your article, what would that be? I would tell grad students that you will face failure in your studies, no matter what you're doing. If you're a scientist, if you're not a scientist, if you're, you know, any kind of graduate student, you're going to have some bad times. You're going to have some good times. Um, Don't let anyone define what your worldview of happiness is, right? Don't let anyone define that for you because that's for you to find and it's not happiness, it's meaning. You know, that's that's deeply personal to you and it's not something that anyone can ever experience or tell you to feel. And I think I, I closed out my, my uh, article with this uh, sentence that I'm kind of embracing myself actually <laughs> and it's, it's thrive in unhappiness, right? You know, find meaning and maybe not joy, but but some sort of, meaning in in these unhappy moments that you experience it can be a personal satisfaction even if it's not jubilation exactly exactly you don't have to be you know over the moon to have that experience you know the notion that lack of happiness doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be doing something exactly i mean parenting drives me crazy half the time but it doesn't mean that um, i don't want to be a parent do you have anything else you want to say check out sizzle yeah, tell oh. us about Sizzle. So what yeah. what is Sizzle? How'd you get, get connected with, with them? I think I got an email from them and they said they were accepting blog writers. Um, and uh, I really enjoy writing. I really enjoy writing about science. Um, I'm the chief editor for UNC's um, Science Writing and Communication Club. So um, I'm all about that. So I took it as another opportunity to expand my um my experience with writing for um, the sciences. And so I got in contact with Sizzle and uh, they pretty much uh, said, send us an article. And it was kind of fortuitous. I found the Oatmeal's comic, you know, the night before. And I was like, oh, well, I have a blog post idea for you, like right now. <laughs> so, I think that seems like how we come up with uh, podcast ideas. It was yeah. the night before. It was the night before <laughs> podcast and all through the house. We needed something to talk about. So, so dear, dear, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, man. Um, I'm still deciding. Um, for now, I'm going to stay a grad student and finish strong and focus on lab work for now and focus on finding meaning in it. Whatever makes you happy, Deidre. That's great. That is great. Except not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So, Deirdre, I don't know if you've heard the show, but it's now time for our etymology puzzle. Oh, boy. And as our guest, you have to participate. No cheating. Yeah, no, cheat. no cheating. So the clue last week suggested by Josh and ripped from this week's headlines, just when you thought your campaign was floating along, this type of inflammation could draw unwanted attention. And we're looking for a scientific word that is described literally in the clue. Josh, what do you have for us? Any guesses, Deirdre? Oh, man. So, um, uh, so when I, when I hear the word campaign, um, obviously it's, you know, political election season. It um, sure is. And there was a, a particular incident a couple weeks ago um, involving um, a certain candidate. And uh, I'm going to guess pneumonia. That is the exact correct answer. Ding, ding, ding. And the literal meaning of pneumonia, you know, we think of pneumo as meaning lung. So in the Greek, pneumon meant lung, but it came from 
Pluman, which meant floater. So you've got to imagine back in the day. Somebody, we got a floater. Yeah. So back in the day, somebody is cutting up some dead animal, probably not a human, but I know, hope not. They're, they're cutting up an animal. They're pulling out all this internal stuff that they have no idea what it does. This little chunk of thing floats. So we call it Plumon. And eventually that turns out that was the lungs that had the air sacs in it. And so uh, floating along, that was the, the clue. And of course, inflammation of the lung, pneumonia. When I was in grad school, I studied type 2 pneumocytes. There you go. Do they float? Well, I don't know. They stuck to the bottom of the dish, so I'm not <laughs> sure. So no. <laughs> and what's the etymology on that word, pneumocyte? There it is. It's I'm guessing. Long cell, right? Long cell. There, there you it go. Is. That's where they came from. This is why I do the etymology puzzles, so that I can uh, do better on my GREs next time I take them, which will be never. Hopefully never. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. They did not float, so they are not a witch. Are you ready for the clue for next week, Josh? I'm ready, Dan. Make this etymology puzzle great again. I'm not... <laughs> I don't I don't think I can follow that. Okay, this is another one sort of uh, hinted at in previous and recent episodes. This fast-walking ungulate looks like a cross between a camel and a leopard. I'll read it one more time. This fast-walking ungulate looks like a cross between a camel and a leopard. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. This is a genus and species clue, so I need both. Is it a zebra? It is not a zebra. You're going to love the answer, Josh. All right, Deirdre, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed your article, and it was very nice to have you here in the studio. And thanks for changing out with a Hefeweiss, and that was, that was good, too. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. It's like a new world here for us. In Zero Hefeweizen. banana flavor. Good. Good, because there's never any banana flavor in a Hefeweizen. Probably you? aldehydes. <laughs> Don't aldehydes smell like bananas? Yeah, there's one of them that does. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah. Too many aldehydes in your Hefeweizen. But not this one. No. Science of beer. All right. If you have an idea for a future show or feedback on a past show, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter at HelloPhD or get in touch with us on the Facebook page. If you'd like to support the show, help with the beer money, you can go to our website and click on the Amazon banner on the side of the page. You pay the same price you would normally pay at Amazon, but we get a little a little love, which we like. All right, Deirdre, where can people find you in the world? So I'm at, at um, NeuroPhD, and that's P-H-D-E-E, because that's my nickname. Excellent. I like it. A clever little Good etymology on your Twitter handle. All right. If you like the show, tweet to Deirdre. She would love that. Tweet me. All right, guys. Especially Dan. I'll see you in two weeks. See you in a couple weeks. There was some magazine. Oh, like, is it Us Weekly? I thought it was US Weekly for the longest time. I totally did too, yeah. Yeah, see? Because it's letters. But it's Us, right? I think so. I thought it was U.S. Weekly. No, I think it's Us Weekly because oh, I've heard man. other people well, I love who P- should know better. I love P. Opal Magazine. <laughs> I like Leafe. Leafe <laughs> and Time. I read both. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, Dan, we're rolling. So I've right, been rolling for 30 minutes. Just kidding. Uh-oh. Welcome to Hello, PhD.